excited. All right, here we are, um, picking up in Acts chapter 10, and then moving through um, about Acts <coughs> 13, and it's always fun, a little bit of a brain challenge for me to, to, to teach while I'm also writing the next, you know, lesson, so my brain's already like two weeks ahead, and actually six weeks ahead, even, as I'm thinking about my next talk and my next writing, so... Pardon me if I ever uh, spill the beans on something super exciting that's coming that hasn't really hit this list. I try to be really good. Stick to my notes and all that. Um, you have a page, speaking of notes, to take notes on. It's on page 162 in your handout. And I'd like you to take that and fold it um, lengthwise vertically. Um, and on one side of your paper, um, I'd like you to write your name. And on the other side of your paper, I want us to just think about this as we're moving through these chapters. Your name, there on the left. And on the other side, across the fold, to the right, I want you to think in your mind right now about some situation or uh, some person. It could be something in your home life. It could be at work. It could be an issue that you're dealing with inside of yourself. But something that feels very separate from you. <laughs> like it's out of your reach. It's distant. And you're on one side, and it's over here. And it could be, honestly, you know, in Hawaii. <laughs> in terms of if you want to just visualize how far away it feels. And doesn't Hawaii feel kind of far right now? Yeah. All right. But maybe it's on the moon. Maybe it's that far. Maybe it's on Mars. Who knows where it's at? But wherever it's at, it's on your paper. At least we'll do that. You can find it in the, the furthest corner apart if you want to. But what I'd like us to do as I'm working through these passages with you today is I'd like you to be thinking about where you are relative to that issue, that thing, that person, that situation that's way, way out there. If you picture it outside in your mind, that feels so far disconnected, so far away, so far, so much time that would need to happen to bring it together, to, to make it resolved, to have it be healed, to have restoration, to have reconciliation, whatever it is. So think about those distant people and relationships and as we move through these next few chapters, I want us to be thinking in terms of what God's been doing in his people, that he's been gathering them together only for them to be scattered. And then even in the scattering, he brings them back together and then off they go again, they're scattered again. So there's this gathering to be scattered, kind of an expanding and contracting Expanding and contracting, contracting and then really expanding that's been going on. And as we move through Acts, we're going to see it even more, even more, even more. So, Acts chapter 10. Open up your Bible. Acts chapter 10. And we begin with a Roman, Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So this guy, Cornelius, is a Roman. He's been exposed to the Roman gods, Jupiter, Augustus, and Mars, and Venus, and all of the pantheon of gods. And in there, somehow, he finds the one true God. And he becomes devoutly monotheistic. Unlike everyone around him, culturally, even ethnically, he's somehow made that connection point to the one true God. And he's actually in a category of what the Jews 
called God-fearers, God-fearers. And these were Gentiles who actually loved the God of Israel. They were sympathetic, they were supportive of the Jewish faith, um, but they stopped short of becoming full proselytes. They didn't completely convert, they didn't get circumcised. And uh, the Jewish people at that time had a great deal of respect for the God-fearing Gentiles, but they really couldn't share their life with them. Jewish custom completely forbid that. And we're going to see this amazing connection here because what happens to Cornelius, he gets a vision. And if you're like me, you're reading this part in the Bible going, wait a minute, this non-Christian, not even a Jewish guy, and he gets a vision? It says in the Bible, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. He's lodging with another guy named Simon. Not to be confused, this guy is a tanner whose house is by the sea. And so Cornelius hears it and he obeys and he gets his guys in action. Three of them get sent out by him. Meanwhile, what's God doing right when this is happening to Cornelius? He's preparing Peter. He's preparing the man who held, by Jesus' words, the keys to the kingdom. The man who had to come down and make sure that the Samaritans got it right. The gospel right. Peter needed a conversion as much as Cornelius did in a sense. And so God's preparing Peter. And he's preparing Cornelius. And he's preparing Cornelius' entire household. And really... Peter, and everyone else that Peter's associated with as well. And Peter's hungry, and he goes into a trance. And I think it's just kind of a special aside here, just my own thoughts on this. Not going to be any commentaries, but you've all heard the saying that goes, a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. stomach. <laughs> and isn't that exactly what God does for Peter? My husband came in here and sees the bacon back there. <laughs> right? way to a man's heart is his stomach. And I also thought about this. What was Peter's vision? What was the visual that we got there? This big blanket, this big sheet being lowered down, filled with all the non-kosher foods, right? So that Peter could get out of his mindset. What had happened in the previous chapter? Paul is lowered out of where he was going to be killed. And he needed to get out, not of his mindset, but out of that city. And so we have God using that same kind of visual, in a sense, dropping Peter so he can see this basket, dropping Paul so he can get out, but so that they both could continue on in ministry in the exact way and in the exact timing that God needed that to happen. And so Peter has this vision. He sees heavens open and something like a great sheep descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said... By no means, Lord. Classic Peter. I have never eaten anything that is uncommon or unclean. It's like Peter is going to go, I got this one right. <laughs> I got this one right. This is a total trap. Like, don't you? I know I've got to get this one right. And three times, three times, Peter is still like, I know I got this right. I got this one right. <laughs> it's like Peter realizes it's going to change even this one. The voice came to him a second time. God is made clean, do not call common. And it happens three times. And that number three is significant. It's how many times had Peter denied Christ? Three, three times. times. How many times had Peter been restored by Christ? Three, three times. times. How many men were about to approach his door? 
You know, in Old Testament thinking, there was the holy and there was the common. And this is just the Jews made this up. This is literally what God had commanded. Set this apart because God wants to give us that constant reminder of what's special and what's holy and what's sacred. So we have that respect for it. That's why when we see something paraded on like the Super Bowl halftime show, they take what's sacred and what's set aside for what men and women should have together in the sanctity of a marriage, and they parade it for all to see, and they say, ah, it's no big deal, right? We've lost that sense of sacredness. We've, we've gotten so tuned out to it. God, from the beginning, has said, set aside these things that are sacred and holy, and he gives them lots of ways to do that, including what not to eat, what to eat, even fabric, don't blend your, your threads, don't, don't mix fabrics, um, don't mix around with other different people. Be set apart. Be a peculiar people, he says. I called you out. All right. So at this point, uh, Peter believes that God spoke only about food. Right? He's thinking about the whole foods issue. But really, the, the truth about this vision is going to come pretty, pretty clear to him. And I want to give you just a point on this, to, um, just from my own life experience. Uh, it's been a few years now, but several years ago, my husband and I really looked into um, the, the Jewish laws and Jewish customs and the possibility that maybe Constantine really did jack everything up back in the day. And really Christians should all along have been observing the, the Torah laws that were written. I mean, obviously the Ten Commandments, everyone knows that anyway, but what about all the other, there's 613 of them, and uh, maybe we should have been doing all of that. And so we really spent some time because there's a huge group of people, Christians, they're called Messianic or Torah-keeping Messianic people who do believe and hold to that. And so for several years, my husband and I really did our work through that and, and wanted to be right and get this right and not be disobedient to God on this. Obviously, we landed um, on the side of, yes, we can um, enjoy bacon and all that. Um, and it wasn't just to enjoy bacon, although that did play a small role, I will be honest. But here's the deal I want you to know. Um, just for future reference for yourselves, please don't use this scripture to justify a belief that uh, we can eat bacon. That's not what this verse is actually about because the verse is actually interpreted later on. It means the talking to the people. There's plenty of other verses in Galatians and in Hebrews that explain why we shouldn't be observing that kind of ritual law. Ephesians, actually, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But point being, if you are discussing this with a, a Jew or with a Messianic Christian, this isn't a passage to use as your proof text. Um, there's plenty of other ones to use. This will get you a little bit, but they'll shut you down pretty fast on that. Just an aside. That was a freebie directed church. Okay. So while Peter was pondering this vision, the spirit said to him, behold, just so happens, perfect timing, but three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And voila, they explain their mission. They describe Cornelius. And uh, this is what's pretty exciting because really, if you think about the exact timing that had to have happened for Cornelius to get his vision, to send his men, for them to be obedient, for them to not have any flat tires or any traffic along the way or whatever traffic <laughs> or whatever did come in their way, they got there at the exact moment that Peter's out of his trance and can handle talking to them because at that point, if they had knocked on their door any moment earlier, he would have been, yeah, you can't come in. He's still in that mindset. But because of this vision, it's like Peter gets this huge aha moment. So he heads down and um, he visits with, with them and he arrives. And what do they do to Peter? They bow to Peter. 
You know, it's really interesting and significant. Whenever in the Bible worship is offered to men or angels, it's refused with one exception. One man received the worship of men. Jesus Christ did. Very significant there. And this proves that Jesus Christ is more than any man. And also it reminds us that we should not be bowing at the feet of Jesus. And there's an entire cathedral set up for Peter in Rome to this day. Because the Pope, of course, was first started with, with Peter. And uh, they re revere him and they'll walk in and they'll kiss the feet of the statue. And again, for those of you who are raised in Catholicism, you have more of a frame of reference for that. But we have to remember, Peter himself said, no, no. So he said to them, he gets there and he says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any food common or unclean. What does he say? Any person common or unclean. Even Peter himself makes that point. That's why I'm saying don't use that scripture to, you know, do the whole food thing. There's plenty of others, in other words. That I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, which is kind of funny because he did kind of object at the beginning. Oh, I know means. But it's when he got the vision, he figured it out later. He does no more, no more objections. And so I asked them why you sent for me. He doesn't know why he's there. He gets that? So that entire distance they have all along the way, no one's given him the straight scoop. They don't even really know what's going on. Why did you send for me? I want... You to tell me, I want to hear it from the horse's mouth in a sense. So Cornelius explains his vision. He goes into it, gets the whole vision explained. So Peter opened his mouth, which I think is an interesting Greek translation as well, because of course he has to open his mouth to speak. What is he? He's not doing sign language. But Luke does this very interesting, deliberate mention here and says, he, Peter opened his mouth and said... This is a um, euphemism in Greek, and basically saying um, Peter is going to make a really big deal statement here. This is a big, important moment. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand. So here's another connection point that Peter makes, that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, see how the big leap that Peter has made now? God is just working in his mind, working in his heart. Who knows if Peter just shut his mouth all the way from where he was back down to Caesarea so he could think and think and think and think and think about the whole thing. And he gets it. And every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, which would have been huge news because Jews said no, only underneath Judaism. And you got to be circumcised to get in if you're a guy, right? So again, the principal subject of the chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius, but the conversion of Peter. Peter needed to have the switch. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, and pause right there again, so important to remember that the entire Old Testament is good news. And I, I get it. The Gospels are the good news. It's the really, really capital G, maybe all caps good news, but the entire Old Testament is the good news, right? Because Peter says it right here, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, because what does the entire Old Testament do? Point to Jesus Christ, and he gives this beautiful aside, he is Lord of all, in case there's anyone left in the room who might possibly hanging on to polytheism, he is Lord of all, and Peter goes in and he lays out the entire gospel for him, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles when they have this second Pentecost moment. It's so awesome. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. That would be other Jews that came with Peter. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Wow, big, big moment. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Now, again, Acts is descriptive. It's narrative history. Is it prescriptive? Is Acts prescriptive? Does it prescribe for us how we should live? Yes, by extension, but it's primarily narrative history. It's descriptive. It's describing what's happened. Because if it's prescriptive, then we'd all be scratching our heads. Like, how are we going to fit this into what we're supposed to be doing in our doctrinal statement on our website? Because they got the Holy Spirit, and then they got baptized. But after Pentecost, and then when you believe and confess in Jesus Christ, and then, then you'll be baptized, and then you get the Holy Spirit. It's like the order gets all mixed up. And I think as Christians, and I know for me personally, I kind of like things orderly. God, can you just tell me what to do? And he's like, yeah, I gave you six, six, 613 laws, and you couldn't do those. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. So he doesn't want it that way. He wants our heart. He wants our heart. And we tend to go in and we want to codify the whole thing. First, you've got to do this. Then you raise your hand. You walk on the aisle. You fill out a card. You pray. You kneel. You genuflect. You do all your different things. And 29 ways, and now, boom, you're a Christian. I'm, there's literally a tract you can buy that says 20, 29 ways to get saved. Or 29 steps to salvation. There's a tract that used to go out like that. There's another one called the Four Spiritual Laws. Love that one. But really, it's just one thing. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Right? All right. The Holy Spirit comes, and then baptism, baptism comes, and the Holy Spirit. Let's not build our doctrinal house on either of those. It is, this is a description of what's been going on. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, who criticizes? The circumcision party. And they're going to come up again and again and again. Paul writes an entire epistle about it, and we're going to get to that in the next lesson. They criticized them, the circumcision party. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. What are they doing? They're hanging on. They're sitting on their little half of that paper that you just wrote down with their ways and their mindset and their imagination about how things are supposed to be. And they're basically saying, we've got all of this Judaism stuff. Oh, now we get to add Jesus on top of all of that. And Jesus is like, uh-uh. I fulfilled all that. Done. Move it out. Make room for me. Elbow room. Jesus has taken over. And so Peter explains his vision and what God did and what he remembered. And I'll tell you one thing that Peter didn't do. He didn't walk in with his big Pope hat and say, I have spoken. <laughs> he didn't come in with his apostolic authority and say, look, look, this is how it is. God gave me a vision. I went down to Cornelius and we're eating bacon now. Get over it. He didn't say anything like that. What does he do? He just retells the entire account. He does it again. And us trying to do a Bible study, he's like, I'm going to have to answer all these questions all over again. No, we'll just skip it. Because you already heard it all. So Peter tells them all over again, though, too, doesn't he? All right? Very important there. He brings them in on the process. All right? And I remember, Peter, I love this. And I remember, Peter has this little light bulb aha moments all the time. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, Oh, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's like the, the disciples and the apostles who had been with Jesus all that time are going, oh my goodness, I am getting it. Ding, 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 ding. It's like when later on in life, you're like, oh my gosh, three times three is nine. I totally remember it now. Like all these things that you were taught back in the day are clicking because you have a, you have a place to put it now. 
Before it was just flashcards. Before it was just like a teacher saying some comments. If I had a nickel for every time a fifth grader came into my classroom and told me that the fourth grade teacher never told them about commas, I didn't learn that last year. I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? I used to call the fourth grade teacher and have her march on over and tell them. I feel like Jesus would want to say the same thing sometimes. But Peter remembers it. I remember how he said If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us and we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? What does this sound like right here? This sounds like our good friend Gamaliel from back in Acts chapter 5-ish, I believe, 5, who says, But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might be even found opposing God. Peter is thinking the same thing. Who was I to stand in God's way? He's getting it. This is God's plan. This is how it's going to be. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Ding! Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You got the whole thing right there. This is exactly what it is. To the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Guess what, ladies? That's you and me. We're in. Love that. All right, so I want us to see this big, huge connection, and I want you to turn in your Bibles over to Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, and I want you to think about your paper that you wrote, you on one side and your thing and your person, your idea, your issue on the other side of your paper, and listen to this, but God. Being rich in mercy-ish, verse, uh, verse 7 or 6 or something like that. I forgot to write down. Thank you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, Cornelius and you and me and you and you and you and you, called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, which has made us both one. And listen, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That means that ritual law, the don't eat bacon laws and all those, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's the summary of what ends up happening right here. Mark it in your Bible. Link it back to this passage, Ephesians chapter 2. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. They get this whole, um, this issue comes up with the, with the um, uh, famine coming up soon. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church, taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Right there. Here's the deal. Kind of like in America when we were called Yankees first. You know, that, you know the story about Yankee Doodle Dandy and all? That was a put-down. Calling us Yankees was a put-down. All right? Calling them Christians was also a put-down. It was a put-down. And we just own it, right? Mm-hmm. It was associated, according to the documents from the day, with crime and sedition. That's a good word for you. 
But you know what else? Why it came to their attention? Because it was associated with famine relief. They saw that the Christians were the ones who are rallying together when this prophecy comes up with this Agabus guy. All right, about that time. So here we are, amidst of the famine. King Herod, back to Acts uh, 12 now. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands. That is a loaded phrase there in the Greek. Because we know, of course, he kills James and imprisons Peter. But the violence is getting out of control. And Herod's at the center of causing it. And the Jews are thrilled about it. This is why they're first called Christians in part. Because they see that as the center of all this hullabaloo that's going on. It's a Greek word for, I don't know what they get, But you know, it's hullabaloo. I'm sure it's Greek. <laughs> so, at that time, he lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Uh, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. You see, up to Acts 12, the church has really been sort of on this streak of success. And they get one conversion after another, after another. And the church is growing and growing. And they've got a few setbacks. And things are obviously happening that are difficult and challenging. But for the most part, it's this pretty big yes and pretty big amen and pretty big, aren't we awesome? And God's doing great things. And then what happens is Herod breaks in, influenced demonically by Satan, of course, because anything that's contrary to God is antichrist and against um, God's plan or against God's will. And uh, he comes in there. And messes around and um, inspires Herod to kill James. And I think this was a huge wake-up call for the apostles because this is the first apostle to die violently. Okay? I think it shattered the illusion that somehow the apostles were going to be free from any kind of special blessing because they were apostles. You know, they were the chosen ones. And they don't replace James. They replaced Judas, Judas betrays, and they come in the first thing to do, and they get, you know, they replace him. But they don't replace anybody else. Nobody else gets in on that. You know, Paul has his special dispensation, and he gets in. But there's no divine protection that's unique because of being an apostle. I think that's a head scratcher, to be honest. It really is. Because I think we do tend to think the people that are the closest, the most holy, the most beautiful, the most anointed, the most apostolic, the special ones, somehow they shouldn't. Be touched by violence like that. But really when we look around and we see the violence and the destruction that's on this earth, it's often the ones that we wish would never have been destroyed. Why can't God take the mean, grumpy people away? Take them. He takes the good, nice people who are trying to do work for him. And honestly, it's a head scratcher. And it does kind of bring us back to that whole problem of evil issue. And you really just have to say, you know what, Lord? I just, turns out, don't get it. I wouldn't have killed James. It wouldn't have been how I wrote my life story for James. But the Bible is very clear. All the days ordained for us are written in this book, it says in Psalm 139, before one of them came to be. That was James' day. And we're never promised that we're going to die peacefully in our sleep. Right? And James didn't. But James is in glory. Isn't he? All right. So, these are the days during the unleavened bread when he seizes him. And um, he sees him, he puts him in prison, Peter, and he delivers them over to four squads of soldiers. I mean, word is out. Peter keeps on getting out. And he's like, I'm not going to let this guy get out. One squad, no. Two, three, no. We're doing four squads of soldiers. And surely Herod's thinking, he is locked up. This is going to work, crazy old Herod. Actually, he wasn't that old. He was about 54 years old, by the way, which is really young, the closer I am to it. Anyway, um, 
so he uh, locks him up really good and tight. And I'm sure at that point, God's going, oh, no, four squads. I wasn't expecting four. <laughs> what will I do now? You know? <laughs> right. All right. So it's during the season of unleavened bread. He locks him up with the four soldiers. He's intending after Passover to bring him out to the people because he loves the glory. He, he just thrives on it. Josephus records this as well, the, the Jewish historian. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer, and that word earnest is the verb ectenos. It's related um, to ectenes, and it's a medical term, and it describes stretching of a muscle to its limits. He's just reaching out. The exact same word that Luke uses here is the same word that Luke used when he described the agonizing prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's that flat out, all in physical prayer. I've been there where I've screamed my prayers out to God for healing, for restoration, for forgiveness, for all of it. You're just flat out screaming and, and physically just putting it all out there. And their prayers are answered. Peter ends up being rescued. So Herod, and I love the way Luke retells this, Herod was about to bring him out on that very night. And Peter is doing what? He is sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And all of that, he still has to strike Peter on the side to wake him up. That's a big, firm kick. That's a smack, right? Get up quickly. You know, for a society that spends $10 million a year on sleeping pills... This is shocking. He was sleeping. He was sleeping. That is how confident and at peace Peter was. And we get stressed about our next day at work when we're in our comfy little beds. We can't go to sleep. And Peter writes about this later on in 1 Peter 5, 7. I don't have the slide for you, but it says, Casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. And this wasn't something he hadn't practiced. Peter knew this very well, didn't he? He was sleeping while chained to two soldiers and he was being guarded and he knew the timetable he knew that passover was over he knew what was liable to come crying out loud james is dead he knows that's what's next for him but it never disturbed his rest he's like this old fisherman who's sleeping through a terrible storm in a boat and somebody says aren't you concerned and that old fisherman reminds him that the psalmist said that the Lord never sleeps and never slumbers. And if that's true for the Lord, there's no sense in both of us staying awake. Let God be awake. I'll sleep. God's on the job. And the chains fell off his hands. So Peter is so out of it, the angel has to tell him to get dressed. If you've ever had, you've ever had to work with a toddler who's out to sleep or a kid, you're like, all right, put your shoes on, Johnny. All right, little Peter, little Cephas, right, little Simon. Put your shoes on. Dress yourself. He probably would have just walked out naked. Who knows what he would have done. So the angel has to tell him to get dressed, put on his sandals. And the humor just keeps on building because the next scene is when we meet this sweet, darling little sitcom star of a girl, Rhoda. Don't you think this really should be in a sitcom? You know, her name, by the way, means Rose. If you want to name a little dog or something like that, Cameron, Rhoda's a cute name. Rhoda means Rose. And you could just always have a good giggle. When you, uh, your little dog, Rhoda, comes into the kitchen and barks for something or meows. <laughs> anyway, 
All right, so <laughs> here they are. They're praying. They're flat out. They're earnest. These are not callous little prayers. And I think they've gotten caught with this weird bad rap. Is maybe their prayers weren't that great, or they didn't really believe. It says they were praying in earnest for him. They wanted Peter released from jail. They're praying fervently for that to happen. He knocks on the door of the gate. The servant girl Rhoda comes to the door and answers. And Peter just wants to get out of the street because he's awake now. He knows what's happening. Like, he's a wanted man. He wants to get out of the street. Knocks on the door, and she goes, and does she open the door? No, she does not. She pops open the little peephole, maybe, and the door, hello, sees him, just is flustered, and runs off to tell everybody, and they don't believe her. What do they say? You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. And um, they, they, um, they say, it's, it's an angel, maybe. In, in other words, they invent a theology to dismiss what she possibly could not have been seeing. We don't turn into angels, by the way. Don't you just love that when people say that and someone dies, oh, God needed another angel. No, he didn't. No, no angels. We're not turning into angels. You don't transmogrify into an angel, people. And you die present with, uh, absent in the body, present with the Lord. Boom. Not absent in the body, present with the Lord. Boom, you're an angel. You don't get little wings when you're up there. It's cute in the stories, but you don't have that. So they invent this little theology to go along with that. And it's, oh, it's his angel that you're seeing. No, not his angel that you're seeing either. And he didn't become an angel either. The Jews actually believe that everybody had their own personal guiding an angel. It's why that theology kind of sticks around to us today. We don't have our own personal guardian angel. Go ahead and chapter verse me on that one if you argue, but we'll, I'll be right. It's okay. But you can. I'd love, to, I'd love to have a discussion with you on that one. It's in Psalms, and so some people use this one verse in Psalms to say it, and it's, it's not true. Anyway. But Peter, but Peter, here we go. But Peter continued knocking and they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Probably didn't describe the whole part about half running out naked and the angel having to wake him up and all that. But he says to them, tell these things to James and the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. So in the midst of all this threatening persecution, in the midst of all this trial, Herod's already slaughtered their buddy James now he wants to slaughter Peter, and that's the only the beginning of what he wants to do. What certainly the Christian people were expecting was going to happen. In the midst of all this, they learn God delivers his own. God's working with perfect timing and even allowing the humor to come in and even inspiring Luke to write it in such a way. All right. Where did, we, where did Peter go? We don't know. It doesn't say. He's hiding. Top secret. He's on a mission. Dun, 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 right? <laughs> So he went someplace to hide. He fades out. You know what's interesting? Not only does he fade out from this chapter. You come to chapter 13. We meet up with Paul. Peter's been the main force, the main player in God's enterprise. And everything that God's been doing in chapters 1 to 12 and 13 on, it's Paul. A little bit here and there with Peter. But really, Peter dominates the first 12. Paul takes over from here. All right. So. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to um, the people. And this is quite an amazing uh, sight that ends up happening here. If you read Josephus, the Jewish historian, he gives a lot of insight to this entire thing. It's actually written up in Josephus's historical account, and that's freely available. Just Google this chapter and Josephus, and it'll come up in your search. It's really fascinating. Um, he gives a lot more insight to this whole account. But um, one of the things that were, was interesting is that robe that he stands up in is was actually, um, when he greets the people, was actually made out of silver. And Josephus records that when the sun shone on it, it flashed a blinding flashing uh, with her. It was that glorious, this robe. 
And uh, it was meant to inspire everybody, make him even look godlike, of course. And the people were shouting the voice of God and not of a man. And, and Josephus describes this scene in detail, like the things that the people were saying. And Josephus himself, not a Christian, um, talks about how uh, Herod received all the glory and he shouldn't have done that. Josephus comments on that in his history. It's really interesting. Herod's a fool. He's trying to rob God of God's glory. He's trying to stand in the place of God, and he's a fool for what he's doing, and he's going to receive his just desserts, which is recorded in history as well that, by many, that Herod received what he had coming to him. It says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. That does not mean that he killed him in that very moment. It means that an angel of the Lord struck him down. Here's what history records, um, in addition to what Luke also records. The cheering face, Herod collapsed. According to Josephus, he's carried away and he was eaten up by worms. He was filled to swelling with worms and it took him it took him five days to die. Josephus says he was dead. It took him five days to die. It was a revolting death, a sickening death. God turns the worms of death and looses it on him and he's brought down this big, pompous man by these little worms. But... The word of God increased and multiplied. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, this other Herod, and Saul. I love that Peter uh, uh, Luke includes this interesting detail about these guys and their background because what is this? Extremely cross-cultural. These are men from different nations, different tribes. This is the coming together of everything that Peter had in his and in his in his vision, really. All right. So while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, you've all read through Acts already. We did that in the first week of our study. You've already read it all. You already know what's going to end up happening here. You already know they're going to go off on their mission trips. You already know the trials, the tribulations, the beatings, the near-death experiences they're going to have over and over and over again. And this is what I want you to remember. Just because you've been literally, literally set apart by the Holy Spirit... And you prayed, and you fasted, and you worshipped, and you're surrounded by other men and women as witnesses to everything that you are doing that's right and ordained by the Holy Spirit does not exempt you from massive tribulation, trial, disappointment at the very least, but death. And this was all appointed by the Holy Spirit, sending them off, set them apart for me. And that's it. That's all we get. And they just, they go. And this begins their first missionary journey. And we're going to get details on, on out um, here through chapter 14. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. All right. So they, they go off and they head out to this island, uh, Cyprus. And they meet up with um, uh, Elemis. Luke makes sure that we know his Greek name because I think Luke is actually embarrassed that he's called Bar-Jesus because that means son of salvation and there was nothing about Jesus in this guy. So he, we, he makes sure that we know his name is, uh, is actually uh, Elemis. And this is a demonic man, a, um, an evil man. He's blocking the way of God. He's just as bad as Herod in a sense in the way he is going about this. It's almost even worse because he's Jewish. 
He's a traitor. He's a traitor to the Jewish people and his own Jewish faith. Bar Jesus is his given name. And he's also called this Elemus guy. So um, he's Satan's emissary. He's on Satan's team. He's fast talking. He's a turncoat. He, had re- he completely rejected everything that he'd been brought up with. And um, Paul, he meets Paul. Oh, Paul. <laughs> Tender, gentle Paul. But Paul, or Saul, who was also called Paul, we get this name here, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. You know, it was common for people in that day to have names that were similar and yet different. So it's not like he gets a name change, like Abram <laughs> becomes Abraham. You shall be called Abraham. And uh, I've heard it taught that way that Paul, you know, Paul got his name changed from Saul to Paul. No, he didn't. Was, sometimes he's Saul, Shaul in the Hebrew, and in, in the Greek, it's, it's just Paul. We didn't get a name change. It's just that this is the emphasis. There's a couple other interesting emphasis that will happen after this. We'll talk about that in Lesson 8. But pay attention to those details and be careful what you're basing your beliefs on from your old Sunday school lessons to what actually is written in the Bible. And he says to this, uh, this guy, Elemis, you son of the devil, <laughs> you enemy of all righteousness, you are full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That word straight path, straight path there. That's from Dia Strefo, the Greek words Dia and Strefo. And, um, it means, um, through and thoroughly, which intensifies, that's that deal, which intensifies the strefo, which means turn, all right? So, he says, will you ever stop twisting, perverting, making crooked the way, all right? And he says, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time, which is very apropos, don't you think? Because how did Paul get converted? He was blind for a time with a light that shone as bright as the sun. He goes, you know what? You know what? Here you go. There we go. And I don't know where these, these apostles get that a creative idea. Some people, sometimes people ask me like that. How did you think of that? Two truths and a lie for your Bible study? I don't know. Right? It just came to me. God just brings little ideas into our little brains. Trust me, God has never brought the idea to strike or smite anyone with blindness. Worms every now and then. But not blindness. So Paul smites him and he ends up blind, unable to see, and immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And listen to this. Listen to this point, ladies. Underline it in your Bible. Catch the nuance, what Luke says. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people. People. He's seeking people to lead him. Who does he need to lead him, ladies? God. He needs to be seeking and repenting, but he's seeking after people. This is a man whose heart is not for God. Right, but the proconsul, the governor guy, he believes when he saw that it occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord, not just this miracle, but this, but the teaching of the Lord. Ladies, that's exciting stuff. Now, go back to your your name and your concept and whatever it is that you wrote on your paper. And I want us to think about this lesson again as we close. Is it possible in your imagination now, having read what God has been doing? To bring together Cornelius and Peter? To bring Barnabas and Saul, Paul together? To bring Paul to his knees to convert him? Is it possible that you and this situation, this person, this whatever it is out there, God can't be working in that situation and that person's life in his own time, in his own way? And who am I? Who are you? Who are any of us 
to put a timetable on when that should happen. You know why I asked that question right now? Listen, listen. Why couldn't Paul been converted before Stephen got killed? Why? Why they would have been good buddies? They could have hung out. They could have done the thing together. God could have done that. Why did James have to die when he died? All right? But God's timing is sovereign, ladies. And I know you've got the timetable for the ache on your heart of the when and the why. Everything's going to come together. But can you trust in God's timing? And maybe it's your own heart that you want to be made right. Why do I still struggle with the same issue? Maybe it's the heart of that guy out there or that gal out there or that person, that relationship out there, that situation. Why, why can't you just make it right right now, God? I don't know either. But what does God have for you in this moment, in this season, in this time? What does he have for you in this process to learn to submit and trust and come before him and say, you want not, not my will, but thine. And not my time, but yours. And if you can change a man like Saul, if you can bring him around, I know you can bring this person, this thing, this situation around. But God, if you never do, yet will I trust you. If I never get to see the salvation in my time, yet will I trust you. Because I believe that everything that you are doing is for my good and for your glory. Can you say that? Can you believe that? Can you look and read through a lesson like we've gotten the last few days? And just go back and reaffirm your faith and your trust, not only just in God in general, the big sense of God, but in the minute, small details of who God is and the timing. If you look at an old analog tick, 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 tick clock, sometimes you look at the digital clock like there in the back of the room, we just see the big time, but I want you to look at an analog clock with an actual hand that's going around. Do you believe God like that for every single second that ticks? Sometimes we just see the big picture and we don't want to believe in that little tiny little thing in our own heart and our own little relationships. Let's take a time right now as we close just to be still and quiet and thank God for his perfect timing and his will. Oh, Father, we do thank you and trust you. It's hard. We struggle and we're impatient. And we, we just want to come before you right now and just submit and resubmit our will to yours. And Lord, we just, we just picture that, that person in that situation right now that we're holding on to and we have such a heavy burden for. And Lord, we just hold it in our hands and we lay it before you. And we just place it at your feet right now. And with our hands free, and with our hearts resubmitted and recommitted to you, Lord, we can feel your arms around us. And we can hold you again, letting go of the thing that keeps us there, that, that lack of faith and that lack of trust and that urgency and that hurry. And we just hold on to you. And we thank you, God, that you will make all things beautiful in your time. God, go before us now as we leave. Just be with us as we continue our studies. Just help us to see you more clearly, to grow in our trust and our faith and our love for you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen.